Hello, my name is Paul Ryan and I'm the founder of PharmaBuddy. I work as both a pharmacist and as a GP and I'm passionate about clinical pharmacology and therapeutics. I enjoy making international guidelines relevant to those of us in primary care. So in today's podcast, I'm going to talk about the role of diuretics in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And there are three types of diuretics I'm going to talk about. Number one, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. Number two, loop diuretics. And number three, thiazide diuretics. So mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, these are added after an ACE inhibitor and beta blocker if the patient remains symptomatic. And that's as per the current NICE guidance. The times when you wouldn't add a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist is that if patients have CKD, chronic kidney disease stage 4, or has raised serum um, potassium of greater than 5. They actually now can be initiated in primary care as per the new NICE guidance, and this brings it, uh, brings it in line with the current sign guidance. In previous NICE guidance, they were reserved for specialist use. Now, spironolactone is started at a dose of 25 mg once daily, increasing up to 50 mg once daily. Now, epilerinone is a selective mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, um, whereas that spironolactone is a non-selective one. They're actually equally effective in improving outcomes, but epilerinone is less likely to cause the gynecomastia or sexual dysfunction in males. Now, what about monitoring? So a nice guidance uh, is to measure electrolytes, looking specifically for hyperkalemia and renal function as well as blood pressure, before and after starting a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, after each dose increment, and once on target or maximal tolerated dose, to monitor electrolytes monthly for three months, then at least six monthly, and whenever the person has an intercurrent illness. If you look at uh, the NHS Think Kidneys guidance, this has similar monitoring regimen to the NICE that I just mentioned. Uh, so it's sim- similar monitoring regimen at initiation and monthly monitoring once stabilized, which is in line with NICE, but then it recommends three monthly monitoring for a year and four monthly monitoring thereafter. Okay, so if it's at NICE, is six monthly. So it's just interesting to know the difference between the two and just be aware of the differences in the guidelines. Now, next up, I'm going to talk about loop diuretics. So, the evidence-based medicine for loop diuretics in heart failure is limited to a number of small prospective studies. So, we know that loop diuretics are used as required for symptoms as a result. Okay, so so unlike your beta blockers, your ACE inhibitors, your mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, and now your glyphosins, the loop diuretics are, are not the f- within the four pillars of, of management, uh, pharmacologic management of uh, of HF, ref, so of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So loop diuretics include fusamide and bumetanide, and these are preferred to thiazide diuretics. Loop diuretics are more effective at promoting diuresis than th- uh, than um, thiazide diuretics, and that's why they're used. We know, just back to pharmacology, we know that they work at the ascending loop of henle to increase renal sodium and water output. 
Now, because biometanite has a better ore bioavailability than fruzamide, so it gets into the blood system uh, um, more effectively, one milligrams of biometanite is equivalent to 40 milligrams of fruzamide. So, and just to talk about dosing regimens, so you individualize the dose of the loop diuretic to treat symptoms and signs of fluid overload, i.e. you titrate the dose up if the person is fluid overloaded or if they're congested, and titrate down once the condition has stabilized and additional heart failure medications are started. If patient is hypovolemic or if they're dehydrated, the diuretics should be withheld until needed because over-treating may cause dehydration or renal dysfunction. If we, we know in certain patients with heart failure that they, they, do, they perform daily weighing. And what are these patients? So if the patient is at risk of admission to hospital or else of decompensation, you record the dry weight and, day, and perform daily self-weighing. And the patient should report if there's greater than one and a half kilos of a difference within two days uh, of weighing. Because we, we feel that, that there may be some fluid congestion causing this weight gain. And just acknowledge the changes in renal function in patients with diuretics. So obviously baseline renal function needs to be performed needs to be performed and electrolytes as well and as well as blood pressure. Um, this is needed before treatment and after initiation and after each dose change, an increase in creatinine of up to 25% or a fall in EGFR of 20% is acceptable. So this is, you know, a bit tighter than the ACE inhibitors because with ACE inhibitors, you can tolerate a rise in creatinine up to 30%. So we say if creatinine go from 100 up to 129, for example, or else a fall in EGFR of up to 25%. So, um, and just to remember, you know, that the decline up to 25% uh, of uh, a, a, a rise in creatinine or a fall in EGFR up to 20% is not uh, an indication to reduce diuretic dose. So they can keep going with the diuretic dose as long as it doesn't, the uh, increase in creatinine doesn't go over 25% or the fall in the EGFR does not go below 20%. So, um, or if the fall in EGFR does not go is not greater than 20%, I should say. So avoid excessively high salt intake. So it's, this is actually a very important point. So we, the average salt intake in the Western world, it reaches up to 6 to 8 grams of salt daily. And that's about 2.4 grams of sodium per day. So if these parent, patients are taking loop diuretics, you know, by having a high salt diet, you're going to negate the effects of the loop diuretics. So they really need to have a, a low sodium diet. And just remember, avoid salt substitutes with, because these tend to be high in potassium. The final, th the final diuretics to discuss are the thiazide diuretics. So these work at the early distal convoluted tubule. We know that they're cautioned in patients with an EGFR of less than 30 mils per minute. And this is as per the European Society of Cardiology. So... I'm going to be a bit controversial now and I'm going to talk about how NICE, the current NICE hypertension guideline, has relegated thiazides to third-line agents. The reason why I'm being controversial is because there was a meta-analysis done of almost quarter of a million patients with hypertension. So this included about 26 trials. 
And what this meta-analysis suggested was that thiazidiuretics are the most effective drug at reducing the risk of developing heart failure. And we know hypertension is one of the main causes, you know, uncontrolled hypertension is one of the main causes of heart failure. ACE inhibitors are, are the next most effective after a thiazidiuretic. And whereas the calcium channel blockers, beta blockers and alpha blockers were the least effective. Um, so this is interesting because we know that, uh, because we know that thiazides, you know, are the most effective drug at reducing the risk of developing heart failure, it's just interesting that NICE have relegated them to third line uh, agents in the treatment of hypertension. So with that in mind, I am going to wrap up today's podcast. So I've spoken about mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists and how they are added on. Uh, you know, you've got your ACE inhibitor, then you've got your beta blocker, then you've got your mineralocorticoid receptor, and then you've got your sodium glucose uh, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. And then you, the next diuretic then to talk about is your loop diuretics. And we know the evidence base is, is, is limited for these, but that they are very effective at promoting diuresis and obviously cause um, uh, decongestion and and uh, help to remove fluid from patients' lungs. And then I finally spoke about thiazide diuretics and that they're cautioned in patients with an EGFR of less than 30 mils per minute. So that brings me to the end of today's podcast. I hope you found it beneficial and I'm looking forward to delivering my next podcast. Mm-hmm.